0: This is First Farragut United Methodist Church's podcast. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. This month, our sermon series is entitled Reboot, and today, for our third week of this series, we will reframe prayer. Reframing prayer calls us to ask a revealing question. For whom am I? Are we unwilling to pray? This sermon challenges us to see the scope of our prayers as a barometer of our understanding of God's reach. Reverend Martha Scott shares how we can reframe prayer. Verses
1: one through eight. First of all, I ask you to pray for everyone. Ask God to help them and to bless them all and tell God how thankful you are for each of them pray for kings and others in power so that they may live quiet and peaceful lives as we worship and honor God this kind of prayer is good and it and it pleases God our Savior God wants everyone to be saved and to know the whole truth which is there is only one God and Christ Jesus is the only one who can bring us to God Jesus was truly human and he gave himself to rescue all of us God showed us this at the right time. This is why God chose me to be a preacher and an apostle of the good news. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. God sent me to teach the gentiles about the faith and truth. I want everyone everywhere to lift innocent hands towards heaven and pray without being angry or arguing with one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks you to God.
2: a little adventure this morning, or not this morning, this week, underneath my kitchen sink, no one should go there alone. I happen to know I'm not the only one, but what I realized is there are some instructions that seem like no brainers. Drano, harmful if swallowed. Okay. And then I looked at this, these are those little toilet things that you drop in the back of your toilet, You know, for those of us who don't clean very frequently. They also said, do not eat or do not ingest, okay? And so then there's this one who's Clorox. Yes, I actually own Clorox. I do clean sometimes. This one actually says, don't swallow, of course. And it also says it's an eye irritant. So don't spray it in your eyes. Now, Clorox, Drano, more Clorox. That seems like a no brainer, right? But you know, The reason those instructions or cautions are on there is because somebody did it, right? It seems like a no brainer to us, meaning meaning we don't even have to think about it, but somebody did it and because somebody did it and because it probably was not on the cautions that company got sued. So we now have instructions of what not to do on some things that may seem just like a no brainer. In this section of scripture that we just read, it gives an instruction about prayer that I would think probably falls in that no brainer category. But the fact that Paul who's the author of this particular section of scripture, this letter, the fact that he had to say it or write it leads us to conclude that it wasn't happening. And because it wasn't happening, this particular church location in question was suffering. We are in our third week now of a series that we have entitled, or I have, I guess I get to do that, I have entitled Reboot. In the same way that we reboot or restart our computers that flushes out memory that bogs things down, sometimes we need a little bit of a reboot or a restart in our relationship with Jesus. We've been looking at some, some topics, and there are many topics, we're just narrowing it down to four weeks. We've been looking at some topics that when we make small changes, can make a lasting impact. We started with the topic of relationships. We tend to think that our faith journey is all, all about me and God. What's the song? Me and God, we're two peas in a pod. We tend to think that our relationship with Jesus is all about us individually, personally. Now we happen to live in the single most individualistic society, I would say on the planet. So it's no surprise that we think that. But if we read through scriptures cover to cover, we find that we were made for community, for relationship. So our relationships with each other can also be an indicator of the health of our relationship with God. So we started with relationships. And then last week we talked about regrets. Who doesn't have regrets? We all have regrets. But what we saw last week is that our regrets, no matter how badly we have blown it in life, our regrets can become or really are more than amazing grace stories. They are stories of God's amazing grace. So today we get to prayer, reframing prayer. Prayer is not unique to the Christian faith. Just about every religion on our planet earth has some semblance of prayer. Some some religions call it Uh, meditation, some call it reflection, some call it plain old fashioned silence, but all religions have some semblance of prayer of communing with the divine. And if you were to talk to most Christians, if they were honest, if all of us were honest, we would confess feelings of guilt over not praying enough, maybe not knowing the right words to say. And many of us have sat in our share of small groups or Bible studies 10 or 12 of us that were chatty Cathy's for a whole hour. And then the leader at the end of the group says, would anyone like to pray? And everybody has laryngitis. We're a little bit uncomfortable with it. We're going to do an entire series in October about it by the way. But what if reframing prayer from focusing or taking the focus off of what to pray and putting it on to whom to pray for What if we focused that and it could change our apprehension with prayer and begin therefore to change us and those around us. In this particular section of scripture that that we just read, it appears to be broken down into two unrelated sections. There's a first couple of verses that we read that seems to be a command to pray, fairly straightforward. And then the rest of it seems to go into a, a seemingly unrelated theological statement about Jesus Jesus as mediator as as savior they appear to be two separate sections but a closer look will show they are very 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 much related we're using some sections of scripture actually called letters written by a man named Paul we talked about Paul last week if you want the full story of Paul you can go listen to last week's sermon but in summary this man we call the Apostle Paul started out adamantly opposed to the Christian faith. He claimed Jesus was an imposter, a fake, and he in fact went around persecuting Christians. He had some sort of interaction with Jesus and he changed completely. And he wrote most of what we now call the New Testament in the form of letters. This particular letter, entitled Timothy was written by Paul to a person named, anybody want to guess? Timothy, Timothy. Timothy happens to be, we can tell from scripture, a, a trusted colleague and, and missionary companion of Paul. We see Timothy's actually mentioned in many of Paul's letters that he wrote to other churches. But these this one and next week's scripture are two letters that appear to have been addressed to Timothy. Now we assume from, I won't read the beginning, but we assume from the beginning of this, this particular letter that Timothy is in a city called Ephesus and he's coaching or, or mentoring, we might say, a church in that city of Ephesus. We also have a book called Ephesians, that's the place. Timothy is working with this particular church that, that Paul probably started. And the church at Ephesus where Timothy is, is working is having some troubles there are some disputes among the people. Imagine that, disputes among the people in a church. It happens. So there's some disputes going on at this church in Ephesus and there's a bigger picture of challenges under which they're working. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to offer some advice, to offer some sage wisdom. Now I happen to know that there are challenges in ministry I've faced a few of those, one of which is a pandemic. And I can understand Timothy's excitement over receiving a letter from Paul, his mentor, the one who can offer these powerful words of encouragement, this sage wisdom, the one who had an interaction with Jesus. He's the one who's going to know how to address all of these problems. I can even see Timothy running to the mailbox, ripping open the letter, thankful that help has finally come. And the thing Paul says is pray. I can even see Timothy's shoulders going, are you kidding me? Is that all you have? You have had an encounter with Jesus. He spoke to you from the heavens. He blinded you and he turned your life around. He gave you all sorts of wisdom and grace. And the only thing you could say to me is pray. He's looking for the five easy steps the five steps to a successful church plant, the next thing, and the next thing, how do we fix this? But all Paul says is pray. But he doesn't just say pray. He wrote pray for everyone. Seems like a bit of a no brainer, right? But if Paul had to give that instruction, then there's a pretty good chance that they weren't doing that. So he says, first and foremost, the thing you must do is pray for everyone. Pray that God will help and bless them all. That's a small word with a powerful punch, which begs the question of us to ask of ourselves, who is all? Whom are you most comfortable praying for? Just toss out some answers. Who are you most comfortable praying for? Family, children, friends, your church, I hope. It's easy to pray for people we know, right? Our family, our children, our spouses, our friends. It's easy to pray for those things because we love those people sometimes, most of the time. And we know their needs, but what about Other people? What about those whom we would call enemies or strangers? What about the people who hurt or offend us? What about those people who are involved in those regrets we talked about last week? What about that neighbor? We all have one. What about the pesky neighbor? What about our leaders, whether we voted for them or not? What about all of those people. Not praying for all of those people is an indication of our understanding of God's reach. It's an indication that we might lack a depth of understanding of how God's power works and God's desire for, that word, all people. Now, when the apostle Paul wrote this instruction to pray for all people, He was talking about the people within the congregation that were having some challenges, the churches that were having challenges. And then he goes on in the very next verse and he says, I encourage you to pray for kings and those in power. Now, this is no no trite pray for your elected leaders. This is no annual president's prayer breakfast. This is the Roman empire we're talking about. The Roman, the people to whom Paul was writing to Timothy to coach through these things were living under the oppressive rule of the Roman empire. The empire had been in control for some probably 500 years or so, three, four, 500 years by this time. And about this time, somewhere around the last hundred years or so when this was written, before this was written, they had begun to deify the emperor. Meaning the emperor was viewed as a God himself. And in the ancient world, you prayed to all of the gods because you wanted to cover all your bases. And quite frankly, making the emperor a god was a very, very strong, stabilizing political force. So you were instructed to pray to the emperor, to worship the emperor. Now, the interesting thing about that is about this time, we we think maybe, the emperor at this time was Nero. For the bulk of Paul's life, it was Nero. Nero was the one who instituted horrific persecution of Christians. So Paul's telling them to pray for the person who's persecuting them. Can you see the extent to what definition of all is? Pray for this person. But against all of that backdrop, there's a difference. Because Paul says pray for these kings or those in power rather than to them. He's actually being quite subversive to the whole system. But why pray for them all? What good does that do? With that instruction, Paul was encouraging them to pray for the kings and the rulers, those who were opposed to them and pray for each other because Paul knew the only real true source of change was prayer. That inviting and calling upon God's Holy Spirit to bring change was the only way. Paul knew there was no greater weapon, no greater force of power than inviting God's Holy Spirit through prayer. So he writes to them, pray for everyone, including the rulers. And then we get to the second section of that scripture. It seems a little disconnected from the mandate to pray. Paul seems to switch gears and goes into a theological statement when he says there is only one God and Christ Jesus is the only one who can bring us to God. He gave himself. To rescue us all. This seemingly unrelated theological statement actually offers the very reason that we are to pray for others. Who did the rescuing in what Paul wrote? It was Jesus. We have a word for that. We actually have several words for that, but the word we're looking at today is called interceding. Or intervening. It means to step in on behalf of another. Jesus stepped in the gap between us and God, stepped in on our behalf. Our prayers for others do the same thing. Paul is simply asking them to do what Jesus did for them. But couldn't God have changed those evil rulers on God's own? Couldn't God have just stepped in and straightened out Nero just like that? Yeah, God could do that. Couldn't God have stepped in and just straightened out all those disputes that they were having in that congregation? Yeah, God can do that. But wouldn't it be more impactful if actually the people learned to love and pray like Jesus Wouldn't it make a bigger difference if they were the ones who learned to be like Jesus rather than God being some puppet master that steps in and solves all the problems? Jesus himself modeled this when he was being beaten and tortured and nailed to a cross. He looked upon those who were doing that to him and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. He stepped in and prayed on behalf of the ones who were harming him. Did you know that Jesus actually prayed for you too? In the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus is praying for his disciples, the ones who were, who were in front of him. But he continues and he says, But I pray not only for these, I pray for those who will come. Before you were born, Jesus prayed on behalf of you. When we reframe prayer, It has the potential to change us. When we pray for others, yeah, they change too, but we ourselves change, our perspective changes. The way the people whom Timothy was working with were praying, or lack thereof actually, revealed how small their understanding of how God works was. They were having problems. They were trying to solve those problems by their own intelligence, their own willpower. And I bet you they had Robert's Rules too. I bet you they tried that. Anybody try to solve your problems on your own? Is that just me? What would happen if we tapped into a source, believe it or not, greater than our intelligence and our own ability? When we pray for others, our disputes They don't go away, but we find ways to address them. And we are often the ones who experience the change. When we pray for others, we begin to experience a a realignment of our hearts and our minds with the heart and the mind of God. My father is a mechanic. He taught my sister and I how to take care of cars. I cannot tell you how many times I've been asked if I've changed the oil in my car. I cannot tell you how many times I've been asked when the last time was I rotated my tires. And my dad's actually probably watching, I'm gonna get in trouble. But one thing that I do know, and I can hear it now, if you don't get your car aligned, you're gonna need some new tires. What happens when our car is out of alignment? It pulls, pulls to the right, or it pulls to the, I know this, because my father taught me that. But when we get it in alignment, it goes straight. When our relationship with Jesus is out of alignment, our prayers tend to pull one way or the other, and it tends to be the way we want things to go. Reframing prayer by refocusing on who we pray for can begin to bring us back into alignment. So I have some homework for you. Aren't you excited? I was recently introduced to an acronym called FRANS, F-A-R, excuse me, F-R-A-N-S, which happens to be my sister's name. I believe we have that. It stands for friends. I think we have it somewhere. There we go. Friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, and we're going to use strangers for the S. You can actually use something else, but we're going to use strangers. And don't, don't worry, I have a handout for you. Who are your friends? Who among your friends don't know Jesus? Who among your relatives or your acquaintances need a little good news? Who among your neighbors have never heard that God loves them? do you even know? What about strangers? I know we don't talk to strangers. We've taught not to talk to strangers, but they need Jesus too. When we focus on praying for those, God will present opportunities to share with them the good news of Jesus and wonder of wonders, they might actually come and ask you about Jesus. Now I know some of you are going, oh sweet Jesus, she's about to ask me to go witness to somebody. She's about to tell me to go have a conversation. No, she's not gonna do that. What she's doing is asking you to pray for friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, and strangers. Make a list. In fact, I have something for you on your way out. Handy dandy piece of paper that you can write those names down and begin to pray for them. Now you may be thinking, well, what in the world am I supposed to pray? It just so happens that the scripture we read answers that question. Now we have to know Greek to do that, but we're not gonna read Greek today. But there's actually four things that Timothy suggests that we do. Pray for their needs. I think we have this on the screen too. Pray for their needs. Now we may think we know their needs. They may think they know their needs, but God knows their needs better than they or us. So simply say, God, give them, meet them where their need is greatest. The next one, we can pray for God to move within them. We call this prevenient grace for God to show God's love to them. God woos is the word we use, draws us to God, even when we don't know it. If we are praying on behalf of someone that God would work within their life, guess what? God will do it. You might not see it or hear about it, but it will happen. And then the next one is we can pray for a bold request. Careful on this one. Don't do this to your enemies. Praying for bold requests. Paul had some blinding moment on this road to Damascus. He was on his way to persecute Christians and Jesus just flat struck him down on the ground blind. You can pray that for someone, be careful, be careful. Because when we ask for God's power to work, it works. And then finally express gratitude. You may be thinking, I'm not really grateful for those enemies of mine. I'm not really grateful for that pesky neighbor. Okay, but can you not be grateful for the person that God created them to be? They may not have fully lived into it yet, so that you see, but can you not be grateful that God created them to be the beautiful person that they were created to be? When we pray for people, when we pray that God would move in their life, we may not see it, but it happens. The person who introduced this to me, the Friends acronym, shared this with me because it used to be a model at this person's former church as a a preparation of inviting people to special events, uh, Christmas Eve, Easter service, that type of thing. That if you begin to pray for people and invite them to worship, that they might actually come. So this person shared with me that, that one lady came up afterwards We're gonna use an alias here in this and said, did you know that I've been praying for John, an alias, for months? And when I invited him to church, he actually said yes. And he is one who has been hurt by the church and swore he would never go back. Can you believe he said yes? The answer to that question is yeah. That's what happens when you invite the power of the Holy Spirit to be a part of your prayers. That emperor that they were praying for, he changed hands. There was Nero, then there was Titus, then there was Domitian, and there was another one. But somewhere along the way, around the third century, came along this man named Constantine. If you know your history, you could argue how or why Constantine converted. That's a whole other sermon. But he became a Christian the Roman emperor, and it was from that point on that Christianity was safe, if you will, to grow. You can't tell me that the prayers of the first century people didn't affect that centuries later. You may not see the change in your time frame, but it happens. When we invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of our prayers for others, change happens. Most importantly, right here. If you want to see the lives of those you love turned around, pray for them. If you want to see our church transformed, pray for those friends, relatives, acquaintance, neighbors, and strangers. If you want to see our community turned around, pray for them. If you want to reboot or looking for a simple way to reboot your relationship with Jesus, reframe whom it is you pray for. You will begin to see a change.
0: Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week as we continue our sermon series, Reboot, as Martha discusses how to rethink happiness. Contentment is a game changer for a happy life. Wanting more, bigger, better, and faster breeds perpetual discontent. Contentment is the answer to the pursuit of happiness. See you then.